stories told of a CHP officer who's sitting alongside of the freeway near an intersection in downtown Los Angeles to catch speeding drivers when he sees a car puttering along at about 10 miles an hour. He thought to himself, you know, this driver is just as dangerous as any speeder. So he turns on his lights, pulls the driver over, and approaching the car, he notices that there are five older women in the car, two in the front seat and three in the back, eyes wide open and white as ghosts. The driver, obviously confused, says to him, Officer, I don't understand. I was, I was doing exactly the speed limit. What seems to be the problem? The officer said, well, you weren't speeding, but you should know that driving slower than the speed limit can be just as dangerous as speeding. She said, I wasn't. She said, I was going exactly the speed limit. And she points to the freeway sign. And the officer looks and he starts to chuckle to himself. And he says, well, ma'am, that's not the speed limit. That's actual, that's the freeway sign. That's the 10 freeway. And, and uh, so he goes, so I'm going to just, you know, get, let you off with the warning. And, and he said, but, but before I leave, I noticed that, you know, is everyone in here okay? No one said a word since I came up to the car. And you're all just frozen in your seats. And the driver, she started laughing. She said, well, that's because we just got off the Harbor 110 freeway. <laughs> And it's like, I thought, wow, you know, once again, we learn that things aren't always as they first appear. You know, and that's certainly true when it comes to stereotypes. You know, for example, uh, there are many who would accuse men of being insensitive, bad listeners, not emotional, things like that. I remember a few years ago, there was, I recall a book entitled, Real Men Don't Eat Quiche. And I always thought it should be subtitled, but they do eat double devils. Other thing. Point. Stereotypes can be misleading and also inaccurate. And the problem is, yet many will become what they think they should become based on such misconceptions. For example, last night my wife and I, we went to a hockey game that was taking place at the pond. And, And the Ducks are playing a team called the New Jersey Devils. And those poor guys think that they have to act like that those fellows, you know, and if you watched any of the games. And so my, my, I, I just want to encourage you that the, the simple prayer to God today and tomorrow before this big game they play tomorrow night is this. It's very simple, but it's, but it's theologically sound. And that is this, you know, Lord, we can't allow the devils to win. It sends a bad message to the rest of the world. Angels won. Devil's loose. Our God is an awesome God. So for some of those confused in your prayer life, I'll just help you out. You know, but on a serious note, you know, one of the things that I I am extremely grateful for the Bible is that in it, you know, we learn what God expects of us. You know, we've got stereotypes, we've got, you know, misconceptions, we've got inaccurate, you know, things based on all the stuff that's out there. What are real men? What should real men do? What shouldn't they do? And all these kind of things. And you know what? What's so wonderful is, is that in the Word of God, God clearly defines what He expects of His people. And His expectations really is the only thing that matters at the end of the day. So no matter what we do, we live to please our Lord, our God, for it is our God who we serve. You know, as Paul said, he said, I didn't come to town looking to be pleasers of men. You know, I didn't come here to gain votes or popular opinion or whatever it was or, you know, somehow or another to, to have you like me. I came to be pleasing to God, and I came to deliver his message, which is eternal truth and eternal life. And as we look at that, we begin to recognize that, you know what, I'm not really sure what the world's definition is of a real man. You know, and, and from the world's viewpoint, the verdict is still out, and everyone has an opinion about what one believes a real man to be. But I'll tell you what I've learned from studying the Word of God, and that is this. I know this about redeemed men, and that is redeemed men praise God. I don't know what real men do, but I'm telling you right now that as I've studied the Word of God, I've recognized one thing. Redeemed men and redeemed women praise God. And we're going to see that in this passage found in Luke chapter 1 that we've been going through the gospel of Luke. Turn with me in your Bibles 
to Luke chapter 1, where we learn what it means for redeemed men to praise God with their lips and with their lives. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 57, we'll start there to the end of the passage. We see in the life of a man by the name of Zacharias, who we've met in the past, and we'll continue to look at his life here today, that he was a man who learned to please God and to praise him with his lips. In verse 57 of chapter 1, we read these words. It says, Now the time had come for Elizabeth, his wife, to give birth, and she brought forth a son, just as God had promised she would. And her, neighbors, and her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her. And they were rejoicing with her. And it came about that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they were going to call, they were going to call him Zacharias after his father, as was according to Jewish custom. And his mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet, and he wrote as follows, His name is John. And they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak in praise of God. And fear came on all those living around them, and all these matters were being talked about in in all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them kept them in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly on him. And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward, toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in the spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. In this passage, we're going to find, as we go through this, two major themes that we're going to examine. The first one is that we find in Zacharias' song, number one, a praise to God for fulfilling his promise, and the second thing, as you see in the, in the second half, is a prediction about John's future ministry. And that's the outline they're going to follow. And if you're following along in the outline, you'll notice that I already filled it in for you. And the reason for it is very simple. I get kind of carried away sometimes up here. And it's been brought to my attention. And being the open and teachable guy that I am, I've learned that, you know, maybe we'll try it this way so that you don't have to call me and email me. And my wife and I don't have to debate every week on whether I said each one of the points and enunciated them properly. <laughs> And we can continue our long and happy marriage that we have uh, enjoyed up to this point. So every, and and, 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 and in fact, you know, every time I lose that bet, uh, I become less of a man in her eyes. So therefore, uh, we just kind of went, oh, let's just kind of do it this way and try it and see if this is going to work out a little bit better. But before we get into all that, you know, we need to take a look at what we've learned up to date and what led up to this song of praise and prediction that we see here. In verse 57 through 66, we have a little bit of background that leads up to it and says, Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth. If you recall from our previous uh, messages, that we saw that God had promised that Zacharias and Elizabeth would have a son. And her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy upon this couple who had for years been barren and had never had children. And, you know, it was a blight in the Jewish culture to be in that position. And, and in fact, if you remember from John chapter 9, there was a misconception, there was an inaccuracy that was in their culture. And that is, you know, if certain things didn't happen in your life, it's because there must be sin in your life. That's why in John chapter 9, the question that was asked of Jesus regarding a man who was born blind, who sinned, this man or his parents? Obviously, if bad things happen, it must be your own fault. And Jesus said, neither had sinned, 
But the whole purpose of this man being born blind was so that God could do a miracle in his life and reveal the identity of Jesus Christ as Savior of the world, the long-promised Messiah. The whole purpose of this man's blindness was so that Jesus one day could open his eyes and demonstrate to the world as a sign that he is who he claims to be, the Savior of the world. And so the misconception was, well, there must be something wrong in your life. And, you know, there are many people in our culture today who have similar misconceptions when it comes to examining what is going on in the life of other people. It was like Job's friends that came to him and said, man, you know what? There must be something wrong in your life. You got that unconfessed sin. You need to confess it. And I'm going to give you two simple rules of thumb, biblically, theologically sound. As I counsel people on a regular basis, here's two things I always run by them. People come to me and say, you know what, am I going through this in my life because there's something in my life that's wrong before God? And therefore, it's a consequence of sin. And the only thing I can say to them is, I don't know, but you do and God knows. So you, as, as, as Joshua 7 points out, in the sin of Achan before God and all of Israel, you need to examine your own heart. You need to examine your tent. You need to ask God, Lord, is there anything in my life that's not pleasing to you? And as a result, what I may be experiencing is the consequence of disobedience as God disciplines me and a son whom he loves and wants to reprove and correct me and get me back into doing what's right before God. That way that seems right, it's end is destruction. God says, I don't want you to go going that way, Chuck. I want you to go down the way that is right, and the end of the road is blessing before God. If you can examine yourself as you ask God to examine your heart, and he doesn't reveal any of those areas that's wrong before God, then the only logical thing, biblically thing, solid, uh, biblically solid, sensible thing to look at is, then you know what? Then you're experiencing a trial, and you can consider it all joy, my brother, because, you know, God is doing a work in your life that will bring about spiritual growth. But there's only one or the other. You've either got sin in your life that's leading to a consequence, or it's a trial in your life that God is going to use to bring blessing, which will be to build you up in your faith. So as we look at Zacharias and we look at Elizabeth, we recognize according to the word of God that there was nothing in their life that this was a consequence or discipline. It was just God's timing is often different than ours. And so his timing was at the right moment in time, you will bear a son. And as we will see, he will be the prophet of the most highest God. And so he went down through it and it says on the eighth day, They came to circumcise the child, which was the Jewish custom, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. And his mother said, no, his name will be John. And they didn't understand what was going on because every male in Jewish culture that had a son named him either after himself or another male member of the family. And she said, no, his name's going to be John. And they said to her, there's no one among your relatives who's called by that. We don't get it. We don't understand what's going on. And so they made signs to his father. Remember? Well, we're going to get to that. And, and they said, hey, you know what? And he said, you know, basically, you know, this, this game of charades continued on for nine months in the, in the life of Zacharias. And they made signs. And he made a sign to say, give me something to write on. And he wrote on, a, you know, whatever he wrote on. It was probably a whiteboard or something like that. And... Um, and his name he said, his name is John. And they were all astonished. Now notice this. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loose. And the first thing that he did was praise God. Is that awesome? I will guarantee you this. If God shuts us up for a period of time, I would pray that most of us, after that period, the first thing that will come out of our mouth is, praise God. You know what a gift it is to be able to communicate? You know what a wonderful gift that is? And James talks about the tongue, and you know what? we got to be very careful. You know, how can we praise God one minute with our tongues, and the next minute be slamming people and, and words coming out that aren't edifying, they're not, they're not they're pure, they're not wholesome, they're not whole, they're not holy before God. It's like, what a, what a privilege it is to be able to communicate. And as I read this, my challenge to me, and also I throw out to you, is this. Let us become more aware of the words that we share with one another. Let us pray before we speak. Let us have time before we begin to talk to others. I've told people in the past, and I'm going to tell you just as a general rule of thumb. You know, I'm open to criticism, not a lot, but a little bit. I'm becoming more open. You know, I want to be honest, too, with this communication, speak the truth and love. And so, but, I, but I'll tell you this. There are certain times that I'm more open than others. 
And that is right after I'm done preaching, I'm just telling you right now, I'm not open to it. I'm just not, you know, and, and somebody come and say, you know, I missed point number two. Well, you know what? Then pay attention. Let me say that that's that's the I know I'm saying that's the flesh, you know, that's the, I'm not, hey, I'm just saying that's the flesh. That and, and, and I'm wrong if I do that, you know, and it's like that's just wrong. But but that's you know where I've got to be careful, and we all do, and how we communicate with one another. I'm a lot more open, you know, a day from now. And you know, think about it, is that not true of most of us? I mean, it's like you got you know, all these gals, they put in all that hard work at the luncheon, you know, and the, and the last thing anybody wants to say right at that moment in time is, you know, you should have did this different, or why didn't you do that, or why was the color of the napkins this and not that? It's like, you know what? There's nothing edifying about any of that. There's a time and a place to examine and to look at things and to take, a, take, a, take an examination of what could we do different, what would be better, Lord, what would you have us do next time that we didn't do this time? And, you know, praise God that, you know, we, we need to be, all be open and teachable. But my point is I was thinking about this and, and, and studying and praying is that here's Zacharias. For nine months, he couldn't speak because he asked God for a sign. Now, I'm thinking the whole nine months, he's going, ask for a sign. How stupid am I? Ask for a sign. How stupid am I? Ask for a sign. How stupid am I? I'm, that's the last time I'm ever going to ask for a sign. How stupid am I? How many times do you think he beat himself up over those nine months asking for a sign? And, and, he, and he couldn't even say it out loud. It was like he was saying it, you know, inside. <laughs> and, I, and I thought, man, and you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of, turn with, your, turn with me in your Bibles back to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4 on page 1314. <clears throat> and, I, and I'm reading through this going, wow, you know what? This is, this is awesome. This is exactly the message that God wants each of us to understand and to know. In Daniel chapter 4, in verse 28, we read these words. It says, and all this happened <clears throat> to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later... He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. And you will be given grass to eat like cattle, and for seven periods of time, which is seven years, will pass over you until you recognize the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and that he bestows it, speaking of authority, sovereignty, on whomever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. And he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But the end of that period, seven years, Zacharias only had to go through it for nine months. Didn't have to go through all this, but at the end of seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What hast thou done? Is that beautiful? I mean, just, and at that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true and his ways are just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. The first words off his lips were praise to God. You know, redeemed men are not ashamed to praise God because they recognize and understand outside of the forgiveness and sovereignty of God, we and ourselves have nothing to boast of. Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows the Lord. 
that he knows the Lord, the God of the universe, the creator of all things. You know, Nebuchadnezzar learned a lesson. David, if you'll turn back to Psalm 51, also learned a very similar lesson. And it ties into what we're talking about if you look back to Luke. But in in Psalm 51, as we take a look at the words of David, Psalm 51, starting with verse 1. We read, Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, and blot out my transgressions. Wash Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that thou art justified when you dost speak, and blameless when you do judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you do, you do desire truth in the innermost part, and in the hidden part thou wilt make known wisdom." Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, and let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. He says, Create in me, O God, a clean heart, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, thou God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of thy righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For thou dost not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give that to you. Thou art not pleased with burnt offerings, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. And a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou will not despise. If I could work my way, I would do it. But you're not happy with sacrifices. They don't please you. The only sacrifice that pleases God is the sacrifice the Lord Jesus Christ made on the cross on behalf of the sins of the world and the resurrection from the dead. He says, if I could earn your forgiveness, I would do it. If I could work my way into your graces, I would do that. But I recognize that nothing pleases you but a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. You know, I want you to stop and consider the life of Nebuchadnezzar, the life of King David, the life of Zacharias, and over and over again throughout Scripture, those who were broken and contrite before God. Those who sought the forgiveness of God and recognizing their need, the Bible says God in no ways would ever cast out. He would not turn his ear to anyone who came to him for forgiveness. See, the consequences of their rebellion we see very clearly in their life. The consequence of Zacharias who couldn't speak for nine months because he didn't believe the word of God. The consequence for Nebuchadnezzar who thought that he was God. And recognized after a period of time that there's only one God and it wasn't him. The consequences of David for sinning with Bathsheba and adultery and then ultimately in murdering her husband. He said that sin was ever present in his life. There was nothing that he could do to ever remove it but be broken before God and say, God, forgive me for I am a sinner. And God did exactly that. See, the consequences of rebellion lead to the brokenness and the contrition and confession of sin for those who are humble before God. For God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And not every person humbles themselves under the mighty hand of God that he can exalt them at the proper time. There are many people who go to their graves shaking their fist in the face of God. And God is not mocked by such behavior, but he gives grace to the humble. See, as we look at this, we see that restoration is what led to praise. For you and I who have come to faith in Jesus Christ have been broken because of our sins, recognizing that, you know what, what other people don't know, God knew. And he knew the sin in our life and he knew our behavior that was wrong before God. He knows even our thoughts that aren't right. And we're broken before God and say, you know what, God, I can fool the rest of the world, but I can't fool you. And so when I come to you broken and, 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 and contrite, I know that you will forgive me. And you know what? And when you're forgiven, you can't help but praise God. 
You know, and that's what this song of praise is all about if you go back to Luke chapter 1. Zacharias, unable to speak or to sing for nine months, cannot help it now as his lips are loosed to praise God. See, this song of praise, like Mary's, is the inspired word of God, and from it we learn how to worship and praise God. As I mentioned, Zacharias' song is a praise to God for fulfilling his promise. And not just the promise made to Zacharias and Elizabeth, you know, regarding having a son, but more specifically, two things are emphasized in his song as we will take a look at it. First, Zacharias emphasized God's and praised God for his plan of redemption. Notice that in verses 68 through 71. His plan of redemption. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. First thing that he notices, or we notice as he says, is that, you know what? This plan of redemption is rooted in his compassion for us. It's rooted in his compassion for you and me, contrary to what some foolishly promote. God did not create the universe or mankind and then distance himself from us. As if somehow or another he got the ball in motion, as some people will say, you know, God did that, and then he kind of stepped back, and, you know, we're all on our own now. And I look at that and say, you know what? The truth be told, we were the ones who chose to distance ourselves from God. If you'll remember, Adam and Eve had an intimate fellowship with their creator. They walked in the garden with him. They communicated him with him. They had intimacy. They had a relationship with God. And the consequence of their rebellion against the commands of God was that spiritual death and physical death were brought into the world, just as the Bible says, through Adam, sin entered to the world, and through sin came death. All of us are born into the world in rebellion against God. We're all born, as David said in Psalm 51, I was conceived in my mother's womb in iniquity. Sin nature resides in each one of us. And we sin because of that sin nature. We're not sinners because we sin. It's who we are alienated from God. And so the truth of the matter is this. It's man, it's you, it's me who have been in rebellion against God and distance ourselves from him. If you remember when Adam sinned and Eve sinned, what they chose to do was what? They ran and they hid themselves from God. Because he knew and they knew he knew. And they hid themselves from God, and they distanced themselves from Him. The consequence of rebellion was spiritual death and also physical death. The soul that sins shall die. The reason you and I will die is because what God says about us is true. We were all born sinners, separated from God. We are dead spiritually. We will die physically. And the wonderful redemption that we'll see and we'll talk about is that it's not God who's running from us. In fact, the theme of Luke in chapter 19, verse 10 is this, that you know what? That God sent his son into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. God is pursuing us while we run from him. How many years did you run from God? I can tell you for many years I ran from God. God would bring people into my life who would confront me about sin and confront me about judgment and confront me about my need for forgiveness and to be broken before God and to receive his forgiveness, to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins and the power of his resurrection. And I ran from that message. Though I knew what they were saying was true, I still ran nonetheless. And I ran from God. And yet the Bible says that Jesus Christ came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. And he's chasing us. But we're running from him. That's not God's problem. That's our problem. And repentance is meaning you're running from God. Stop everything that you're doing and turn back in repentance and ask for forgiveness. And you know what? When you turn around, God's right in your face. Jesus is right there. The cross is right there because he's following us. He's pursuing us with an unending love. You know, and, and, and this whole idea of God, notice he says, God visited us. God visited us. I, I, take that in for a second. In Luke chapter 7, here's a great example. God visited us. In the Luke 7, there's a wonderful word picture that points, puts it all together. 
In verse 11, it says, And he came about soon afterwards that Jesus went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large multitude. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, behold, we're told that a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her. And he said to her, do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin. And the bearers came to a halt. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. And I have every reason to believe the first thing that the dead man said was, praise God. And fear gripped them all, and they began, notice, glorifying God and saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. God has visited his people. Just let that soak in for a minute. Do you realize that God visited us? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his, beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. John chapter 1. God visited us. And they shall call him Emmanuel. God with us. And being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man. God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ that you and I may know God. God visited us. God's plan of redemption is rooted in his compassion for you and me. Going back to chapter 1, you'll notice in verse 68, his compassion for you and I. He blessed the Lord God of Israel for he has visited us. And notice this, and accomplished redemption for his people. I want you to notice that it's presented in the past tense. God has accomplished redemption for his people. Stop and think about this. Jesus Christ is yet to be born. John is only eight days old. Mary is six months pregnant. Jesus Christ is yet to be born. He is yet to die upon the cross. He is yet to be raised again on the third day. But it was already done in the sense that God's plan could never be thwarted. As, Nick, as Nebuchadnezzar said, who can stop your plan? Nobody. No one can stop the plan of God. Everything the word of God tells us is as good as done because no one can stop God's plan. He has accomplished past tense. Acts 2 says, by the foreknowledge of God, Jesus Christ came into the world, died upon the cross, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. To establish his kingdom, there will be no end. He will establish his kingdom here and generation after generation. It will never come to an end. Everything that God said will happen has already happened in the mind of God because God's plans cannot be thwarted. You and I can't stop what God's doing. And so I say to you, then stop trying and repent and throw yourself upon the mercy of God. You can't stop him. I can't stop him. But he allows us in his great compassion to be called children of God to those who believe in his son. Is that awesome? It's awesome. No wonder this guy's praising God. He's had a whole bunch of time because he didn't have time to talk about anything else but to pray and to read the scriptures and to study the word of God. And we're going to see it evidenced by what he praises God for in his lips here. And notice this. It says that he has already accomplished redemption for his people. The word redemption simply means to set free by paying a price. Jesus Christ paid the ultimate, Jesus Christ paid the ultimate price shedding his blood on the cross so that you and I who would trust in him would be delivered. He said that he had come to deliver the captives free. He had come to set the captives free. Salvation to people who were in bondage to sin and death. And certainly the word of God tells us that you and I are unable to pay the price that God requires to set us free from sin and death. Only Jesus can pay the price. Is that wonderful? 
Only Jesus. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 and notice that it's Jesus Christ and him alone. It's by grace we're saved through faith, Ephesians chapter, uh, chapter 2. But in 1 Peter chapter 1, we read the words that help us to understand very clearly that, you know what, you and I cannot pay the price that God requires to set us free from the prison of death and sin. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 through 21, we read these words. And knowing that you were not redeemed, there it is, you weren't bought back with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. Read Ephesians chapter 4, read Ephesians, uh, where it talks about in the Galatians 5, that, you know, we were born into the world, we're futile in our minds, we're darkened and excluded from our understanding of God. We don't know God until God reveals himself to us. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. He says, you were not bought back or redeemed with perishable things, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Jesus Christ. For he who was foreknown before the foundation, there it is, of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Jesus Christ paid the price. Christianity is exclusive of every other world belief system, every other religious system. And you know what? And I get so tired of hearing people talk about, you know what? Well, Christianity is exclusive. It, it, It eliminates or excludes all these other groups. And the answer is that's right. Every belief system is exclusive of other belief systems that don't believe the same thing they believe. Let's just be honest about it for a moment. Is that not true? Every belief system, if you don't believe that system, you're excluded unless you believe what they say to believe. And if you don't believe that, then you're exclusive. And every belief system is exclusive. The only difference between Christianity is that we're upfront about it. Say, you're right. You know what? There's no other way to heaven but through Jesus Christ. There's no other way to please God. There's no other way to get in God's good graces than by by believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and God raised him from the dead and to believe in him and his resurrection. That's the only thing pleasing to God. And at least we're upfront about it. Not all roads lead to heaven. There's only one way. It's a narrow way. And God says, enter by the narrow gate for the road to destruction is broad of those who are on it and many are perishing. The reality is there's only one way to heaven, and it's through Jesus Christ. Faith in him and the finished work of Christ on the cross, his shed blood. And you know what? Back to Luke chapter 1, and that's what Zacharias is praising God. And the reason that he's praising God for fulfilling his promise of redeeming back lost humanity, enslaved to sin and death, Zacharias praised him for his compassion, which led him to send his only begotten son, his Messiah, into the world. Zacharias praised God for his word that was truth. He had nine months to reflect on, never doubting again what God has said. Zacharias praised God because his plan of redemption had been, number two, realized through the coming of God's Messiah. Notice what he says, and and has raised up a horn of salvation. The word horn is used in the Old Testament to describe a symbol of strength or power. If you read the book of Daniel and the prophecies of Daniel talking about, and then was raised up a little horn, and then another horn, then a great horn. It has to do with the idea of symbolism for power. He raised up a horn of salvation, a powerful savior. The picture here is that of an army about to be taken captive, but at the last minute, guess what? We call the Calvary. And at the last minute, the Calvary comes on the scene and frees those who are about to be taken captive and destroyed. And I love that the picture of the cross, Jesus Christ at the last moment, you know, and and, and man's opinion, but not God's opinion from the foundation of the world was his plan. But in your life and my life, at the last moment before you and I would be judged for sin and separated from God for all of eternity in hell, at that last moment in time, he gives us an opportunity to repent and to respond to the finished work of Christ, to throw ourselves on his mercy. And the Bible says that we will be saved. A horn of salvation carries the the idea of health and soundness. No matter what the condition of the captives, no matter how bad off your life has been to this point in time, no matter what you have done, whether you've committed adultery and murder like David did, whether you've had an abortion, whether you've been a liar and a cheat and a thief all of your life, whether you're a drunk or you've gone on drugs or whatever it is, no matter how heinous our sin, whether it's infidelity, perversion, embezzlement, lying, jealousy, 
hateful gossip, whatever it is, Christ, the horn of salvation, can save us completely and eternally if we will turn and trust in him. You know, in Romans chapter 1, a verse that's on the front of our, uh, front of our uh, bulletins every week, my favorite verse, and that is this, that you know what? The bottom line is that because it's the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God, that horn of salvation, the power of God to free us from sin and from spiritual death, to, get e- to have eternal life. How wonderful it is, the promises of God. No wonder Zacharias praised him. Zacharias praised God, and rightly so, for his deliverance from the prison of sin and death, for his salvation by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. His hope was on that horn of salvation. He hung his eternity on the horn of salvation. Have you today? There is no other name given to men under heaven by which men can be saved. All All of our trust and our hope is like hanging a coat on a horn of salvation. Everything is weighed upon him. It's not, we'll trust in him and then we'll do this other stuff just in case. We'll trust in him and then we'll believe these other things just in case. We'll cover all of our bases. No, our whole hope for eternity, eternal life is placed on the cross, the horn of salvation, the power of God. For I'm not ashamed of the power of God, for it is the gospel of God. The power of God. That's awesome. Unto salvation for all who believe. The third thing that Zacharias praises God as we look at this of his plan of salvation, it was revealed through the communication of his holy prophets. Zacharias, I believe, in those nine months had a lot of time to pray and a lot of time to study the scripture. And the more he got into the word of God, the more he realized that, you know what? God had always promised to send a savior into the world. Read Isaiah 53. I challenge you to do that this week. Read Isaiah 53 and Jeremiah 31 and Daniel chapter 9 and Zechariah chapter 12. Read Isaiah 53 and Jeremiah 31 and Daniel chapter 9 and Zechariah chapter 12. Because I don't have those written down on here. So... I will emphasize, read those. You know what? And God had always promised through his holy prophets that he would send a savior into the world. For unto us is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And that's what Zacharias is praising God. It says that, and he, and he, and he praised God for he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. And he has spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. You know what? God made promises that he intends and must keep. Because he cannot tell a lie. For he is not like man. There is no darkness in him at all. Everything God said would happen, happened exactly as he said. And everything God says is yet to happen, will happen exactly as God says that it will happen. Because from God's perspective, it's a done deal. It's already done. And as we go through this, you have to ask yourself the question, why? And that goes to his purpose in redemption. Number one, notice this, to show mercy toward our fathers. Have you ever had somebody accuse God of not being merciful, not being loving? If God's a God of love, then why does he allow this to happen? If God is a God of love, then, you know, why doesn't he just do for me what I want him to do? Because he's God and you're not. And the bottom line of all this is, is that we're talking about the consequences of sin. And we're just reaping what we've sown as humanity. And the bottom line is this. We need to praise God that he would show us mercy at all. I want you to stop and think about your life. Praise God that he showed you mercy or me mercy at all when I consider the years that I ran from God, mocked God, flaunted things in the face, asked those type of questions. God, what kind of God are you? If you're really God, why don't you do for me what I want you to do? I don't have any need for you. I don't have any use for you. I was talking to one of the guys who played on the docks who's from the Czech Republic. And I was talking to him about God. And, and we were going through, you know, just kind of trying to get a feel and an understanding and, 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 and 
some type of recognition of who God is. And here's what's the answer to me. He says, you know what, Chuck? I, know I never wanted anything to do with God because where I'm from, anybody that had anything to do with God got in trouble. They got thrown in prison. They lost their house. They lost their business. They lost their family. You know what? I equated God with bad news. No God, get in trouble. And the reality of Scripture is, don't know God, you're in trouble. And it took a while for him to understand and to grasp his need for God's forgiveness. But he trusted in Christ. And I praise God for that because that's what we're here to do. To share with others that, you know what? God is a merciful God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever would believe in him would not perish but have have everlasting life. You're in rebellion against God. You're running from God. And God loves you that he sent Christ to die on the cross for you. And requires nothing of you other than brokenness and contrition and acceptance of his free gift to you. It doesn't get any better than that. That's why it's called good news. I got good news for you. Got bad news first to help you know you need the good news. But that's just the truth of the word of God, to display his mercy. Notice also to remember his covenant. It says, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. What he's saying is God fulfilled his promise. He told Abraham he'd make him a great nation. He told David Messiah would sit on his throne forever and of his kingdom there would have no end. God made, made promises to Abraham and to David. And you know what? He kept them. And that's why Zacharias praised God for keeping and he remembered his covenant. He made promises. And they were unilateral promises that were not based upon the performance of men. God made the promise and God kept the promise. And Zacharias praised God that, you know what? Nothing that we could do would mess it up. And the third thing is, is that he also came to rescue us for his service. Do you notice that? He came to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. Let me ask you a question. What's your purpose today? Those who have come to understand your need of forgiveness and you've turned to the cross, you've trusted in Christ as your Savior. God, I know I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. I thank you that you sent your son into the world to die on the cross for me. I believe that he died for me. I believe that he rose again from the dead. And I believe your word that says that anyone who comes to you brokenhearted and in a spirit of contrition for their sin, that you will show them mercy. And that we will be born again by the will of God, not by the will of man. That we're children of God to those who believe in his name. I believe that I'm a child of God because of what you say, God, not because of who I am or what I've done. The question I have is this. Now, what's your purpose? You know what our purpose is? To serve him without fear. Do you know the world we live in tries to please God because they're afraid of God? I need to do this. I need to do that. I need to go to church. I need to do this thing, that thing, the other thing. I need to stop doing these things and other things because I'm afraid of God. And I'm just trying to earn his favor. But grace is unmerited favor. Grace can't be earned. By grace you're saved through faith. Without faith it's impossible to please God. That Abraham believed God and he took his son and he offered him his son as God had commanded him to. And God stopped him. And at that moment in time it says that it was declared unto him righteousness because he trusted and believed in the word of God. Abraham did it thinking that God could raise the dead. And we're told that in Hebrews chapter 11. That's why he went through with it. I believe God raised the dead. It's no big deal. I'll do whatever God asks. And it was reckoned unto him righteousness because he believed in the word of God. He trusted in God. You know what? Our great purpose today is to serve him without fear. We serve him because it's a response to his great grace. Zacharias served him for years trying to please God as a priest. And now he's saying the whole purpose of serving him today is without fear. We have nothing to fear. Why? Because God did it all. Because we trust in him and not in our own performance or lack of it or failures. We come to him and say, God, thank you that my salvation is secure in you and not in me. Because if it was in me, 
man, every other half an hour, I'd lose my salvation. You know what I'm saying? The stupid things that I say, the stupid things that I think, I just praise God that my salvation is rooted in Christ and in him alone and the promises of God. See, Zacharias was praising God. And then he got to praise God and, and predict John's future, and we'll close on this. Notice what he says. He goes, and you, child, will be the prophet of the Most High. His name is the prophet of the Most High. Man, what a wonderful thing. For you will go on before the Lord, and that's the nature of his ministry. You will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. He is the Prince of Peace, the Lord of Lords, mighty God, wonderful counselor, everlasting father. What a wonderful thing. John's ministry was to tell people of their need of forgiveness. His ministry was to repent, turn from sin, and turn to God, and trust in the Prince of Peace, the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. For nine months, he sat in silence, allowing God to teach his spirit and his heart the truths of God. You and I need to spend a little bit more time sitting in silence in the word of God, listening to him teach us so that we can warn others that there is a way that seems right, but the end is destruction. To trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and to lean not on our own understanding in all our ways to acknowledge him and he shall make our way straight. God calls us today to believe his good news. Those who believe it experience his joy and want to express their praise to him. It's not enough for us to say that Jesus is a savior or even that Jesus is the savior. With Mary, we must say what she said in verse 47, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior. Is he yours? He can be this moment in time. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. Let us close in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your wonderful mercy. We thank you for this song that Zacharias sang as a redeemed man, understanding that it's all about you and not about us. God, we just thank you, and we thank you for the, this tongue that you've given us in our mouth that we can lift praises to you. We thank you for a new spirit that you've given those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, his finished work on the cross and the power of his resurrection and him alone. We thank you that it's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift that you offer to all, to anyone. Whosoever will call upon the Lord shall be saved. We thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your only begotten son and you promised that whosoever would believe on him would have everlasting life. God, we just thank you. You're a wonderful God. We praise you with the tongue of our mouth and also the tongue of our shoes. May they go in the same direction so that we will never be a hypocrite or show hypocrisy to the world around us. And we just praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.